you absolutely should expect that thieves will take over when you deregulate. Thievery is what unregulated capitalism is all about. We don't really push the envelope. More like open it. This is Litopia. After Dark. The net's first and foremost literary salon. A feast of ideas for your hungry mind. So pull up a chair and let's talk. Good evening. It was the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression of the 1930s. And in British Prime Minister David Cameron's own words, it has resulted in cuts that, quote, will change Britain's whole way of life. Well, our guest tonight is a world-class economist who, most unusually, I think, for economists, doesn't mince his words. Thieves, thieves have taken over the financial system, he believes. Thieves took over the whole economy, he writes, and the political system lock, stock and barrel. They didn't just blow up finance, they oversaw the swiftest transfer of wealth to the very top the world has ever seen. They screwed workers out of their jobs, they screwed homeowners out of their houses, they screwed retirees out of their pensions, and they screwed municipalities out of their revenue. Well, Professor Randall Ray is our guest, and on tonight's edition of Latopia After Dark, we'll be asking him, just how screwed are we? You know what's on television right now? Well, Latopia is the antidote. You've written that there is no part of the financial system that's not riddled with fraud. You say that things are so bad now that fraud isn't the exception to the rule, it is the business model. Well, those are extreme words. Aren't you in danger of being seen as an extremist yourself? (laughs) Uh, I may already have been seen that way. Um, Not uh, strictly for pointing out what I think are the facts surrounding the financial crisis, but uh, I do take a different view of economics, economic theory, and the economy from the mainstream economists, none of whom, I'd like to point out, saw the crisis coming. But, But you did. Oh, sure, 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 sure. There, there were economists who did see it coming. They were not in the mainstream. They were all on the edges of the discipline, like I am. Okay. It would be useful, I think, if you explain to us exactly what you've got at a fringe. I mean, what is your economic discipline? I was a student of Hyman Minsky, and um, you may have heard that when the crisis hit, uh, Paul McCulley, the brains behind PIMCO, uh, labeled this a Minsky uh, moment, and other people called it a Minsky crisis. So anyway, I was uh, his student in the 80s, and unfortunately, he died in 1996. Um, but by 1996, we could see that the financial system had been fundamentally transformed uh, into um, uh, not just fraud, but uh, extremely fragile sort of system that layers debt on debt on debt on debt, that the whole thing was going to collapse. The only question was the timing. I also worked with Wynne Godley, who many of your listeners will have heard of. He was one of the wise men um, that advised the Treasury in the UK, and uh, he developed this uh, approach, the financial 
balance approach that looks at the three main sectors of the economy. And he was here with me at the Levy Institute. So around 1996, we started calling this great crash. We were a bit early, um, but I, it crashed in a manner that was consistent with what we were arguing. And we can explain why it took 10 years um, for the whole thing to collapse in that uh, real briefly, was the U.S. real estate bubble that allowed us to continue to blow up the whole financial system, even bigger than it was uh, around 2000, the first time it crashed. So uh, I don't think that we got it wrong. Um, we just were a little too pessimistic um, about when it would crash. Randy, in your mind, is this a direct result of the deregulation of those sort of Reagan and Thatcher years? That played a huge role. Uh, I in the piece that um, uh, I titled "Why We're Screwed," um, I did mention the deregulation and Robert Sherrill writing in the Nation back. Um, after our saving loan crisis said thievery is what unregulated capitalism all is all about. So you absolutely should expect that thieves will take over when you deregulate. What was the precise deregulation that occurred? Well, we had a number of them. We, the, the saving and loan uh, uh, bubble was created by some very early 1980s deregulation. So that was under Reagan. So that's the period you're talking about. The deregulation Regulation that really allowed Wall Street um, to uh, blow us up in the 2000s really came about under um, Clinton and Larry Summers. So this was at the very end of the 90s. That is when we we essentially got rid of all regulation of big, the biggest banks. We we said you guys are so sophisticated and what you're doing is so complex we can't even understand it. So we're going to let you supervise yourselves. So if we're going to go back to the saving and loan crisis, if if I may, I'd like to bring up Michael Milken as an example. Yeah. That he was a big time player in that whole scandal. He made millions and millions of dollars defrauding people and went to a country club prison for two years, did his time. I think they only had six holes on that golf course. I mean, dude was seriously <laughs> suffering. Oh, that's very bad. And then he's hired on at UCLA to teach a class on economics and economic theory. And it was packed to the gills. There was standing room only. There were biology students who absolutely were flooding in because the feeling was, well, you know, if I'll do two years in a country club prison and make out like a bandit and then, you know, wonder what I'm going to do, you know, how to repair my name. That sounds like a good life to me. So and flash forward five years to when you're talking about the massive deregulation happened in the late 90s. These are those kids that were packing the packing that auditorium. Were they not? Uh, your, your compatriots. My compatriots. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, the, this is exactly right. And it's even a bit worse than, than what you're saying. So he he was allowed to keep uh, most of his ill-gotten gains. He founded the Milken Institute um, that promotes the leverage buyouts that um, uh, he was doing in the 80s. And, you know, the funny thing is that the leveraged buyout boom of the 2000s absolutely dwarfs what happened in the 1980s. Absolutely dwarfs. And, by the way, not a single bankster has been investigated or prosecuted for anything that was done in the 2000s. Milken did go to prison. No one will go to prison 
as a result of this crisis because the Obama administration refuses to investigate and prosecute crooks. It's absolutely unbelievable. I mean, my cousin Ray Ray robbed robbed a liquor store and he's still in prison. These guys... Unbelievable. It's just unbelievable that no one has gone to prison or is going to prison. It seems that if you steal on a massive scale, you're lauded as a hero and kids fill your classrooms. What was the given reasons for the deregulation? How did they make make sense of it or try to sell the idea? I haven't quite got that bit. Well, of course, we've had a um, since the days of Thatcher Reagan, we've had um, this belief uh, really take over, or at least justification, I'm not sure how many of them actually believe this, that uh, the market almost always knows best. When uh, Remember, during the dot-com boom, uh, Greenspan uh, said, who am I to say that I, an individual, know better than hundreds of thousands of uh, people who are buying and selling stocks, you know? What makes me think that I know better than the market? The market always knows best. And there were fancy economic theories and financial theories that um, purported to um, give support to this belief. So that has been growing on a long-term trend. So the deregulation in part was due to that. Um, I think that it, it also was largely uh, political. Uh, Wall Street has become uh, 40% of corporate profits go to Wall Street in the United States. I I assume it's pretty similar in the UK because you have the equivalent to Wall Street there. And 20% of value added. Think about that. 20% of value added of our, our whole economy is now finance. So when politicians are looking for campaign funds, where are you going to go? You're going to go where the money is. That is where the money is now. So the, the, the potential support from Wall Street drives the policymaking. And then we, we have you know a well-known revolving door between Wall Street and the administrations so that uh, all the interests are aligned to deregulate these institutions and then reward the people who deregulated, which is exactly what happened with Larry Summers. He got very well rewarded for pushing through the deregulation. So as a second term president, president has Obama yet made the token gesture of campaign finance reform? Uh, not that I know of. I'll give him a month. <laughs> that's not really my uh, area. But, okay, so... You could argue that that now that he's in his second term and he doesn't need to campaign anymore, that he could get tough with Wall Street. But there's no indication whatsoever that they're going to do that. There there is some prosecution sort of around the edges, but nothing aimed at the, say, the, the dirty dozen banks, which are responsible for this whole thing. It's only 12 banks. 12 global banks, you know, give or take a couple, that caused the whole fiasco. And you will find fraud everywhere in these institutions if you only look for it. And there's no attempt to do that at all. I I think that they're all waiting for a statute of limitations to run out so that they won't be able to prosecute. If you fly into the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the first thing you've got to do is buy your luggage off the plane. 
You got to buy. You see a pile of it, and there's guys sitting there, and you got to buy your luggage off the plane. Now, a lot of people think that that's absolutely corrupt and horrible, and you got to bribe a policeman. But that is a low-level, direct kind of fraud that goes on on a daily basis. You look at India and the whole bucksheesh system that goes on in North Africa, where you're always paying a few, you know, a few pounds, a few shillings here and there. But this is on such a massive scale, and it's clean. You don't feel it. There's no one in your face taking your money. It's just a little that's skimmed off your account. There's a little, a few more points in interest. It sounds to me like they've. If we want to stop this, the way the system is working, you talk about the 99 percent actually rising up and doing something, and you're open to suggestions. Do they have us by the balls, and how can we get them to release their grip? Yeah. Let, let me just first. I just wanted to really quickly. Um, comment on fraud. Yeah, the low-level fraud versus the high-level fraud. Um, so in the United States, it's true we have much less of the low-level fraud. You don't generally bribe the cops and so on. Um, that's absolutely true. But as my colleague uh, Bill Black, who actually is the expert on white-collar crime uh, in the United States, always says the the high level, what he calls control fraud, destroys far more economic value than all of these other little frauds all over the globe combined. And it's worse than that. It's not just that they directly destroy economic wealth. You know, we're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars of financial wealth was wiped out. Rand, in this Randy, crisis. tell us what you mean by control fraud. Okay, control fraud means where the top management of an institution, say City, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, UBS, um, the top management run those institutions as frauds to enrich the top management. So these institutions are run by the management for the management. Um, and their main weapon is accounting fraud. So they use accounting fraud to enrich themselves. Um, so that not only directly destroys wealth, directly destroyed jobs, results in millions of Americans losing their homes. You know, all of these are things that Americans are feeling. These are real losses, but it's worse than that because there's a, a Gresham law dynamic. That means that uh, fraud is always the most profitable business strategy. It's always, it's a sure thing. When you're engaged in accounting fraud, you're rigging the books to benefit yourself. It's always profitable, the most profitable thing you can do. Look at Bernie Madoff. The best returns you possibly could get were by Bernie Madoff. Why? Because it was pure fraud. He could have any return he wanted. He, <laughs> he, he just made them up. But okay? there's a difference in the, between Bernie Madoff, who's serving God knows how many life sentences in a supermax or something right now, and people like Hank Paulson, uh, Robert Rubin, Yes. Jamie Dimon, John Corzine, of course. I mean, these guys are not behind bars. Uh, and these guys are, as I said, they're not being investigated. They won't be um, prosecuted. They will never serve time in prison. That, that's, that's all correct. Um, the, the way that the scams are run are different. Uh, Bernie Madoff was directly involved. These others generally have some kind of plausible deniability. It makes it harder to trace the fraud directly back to them. If 
you have uh, one institution that's pursuing control fraud, it's going to be much more profitable than any other. Mm. What does that mean? The others must engage in fraud too. They can't possibly compete. They're, you don't have a level playing field. So it's not that just that they've destroyed all this financial wealth directly. They have changed business culture. The, the control frauds change the whole business so environment. So it's a race to the bottom, basically. If, if, you're, if your yes. competitor is going to cheat, you've got to cheat, otherwise you're not, not in business. Would you say the, the LIBOR scandal is an example of that? Yes, that's right. I mean, and, it, you know, it's scandal after scandal after scandal. You've got J.P. Morgan and the whale. We've got uh, Corzine and MF Global. We've got LIBOR. We, and then what do we find out? The, the banks have been laundering money for drug runners and for yeah. the worst terrorists in the world. You know, why? Because it's profitable. <laughs> it's the most profitable thing there, there is. The, the I mean, people it's stunning. In- it's, abs- <laughs> it's just stunning, isn't it? I mean, yes. do you ever wake up in the morning, Randy, and think, I've actually gone into, you know, Wonderland. I, I'm Alice. I've just, just gone through the, uh, the looking glass here. Um, it just, it doesn't, you know, there's something profoundly unreal about this, isn't there? Yes, there is. In the saving and loan uh, crisis that we already mentioned, uh, your listeners might not understand that savings and loans, these are typically very small firms, uh, very small banks, okay, very specialized. And to find out that, you know, several thousand of these had been taken over by crooks, it's shocking. (laughs) But, you know, these are like little corner uh, operations. Sometimes they, they they worked out of mobile homes, you know. So they were small, except for Lincoln Savings and Loan, uh, which was big enough to actually bribe five senator U.S. senators and get them involved in the scandal. Can you but put it in a proportionality scale for us? Up to a billion dollars. Okay, Silverado was a Denver Savings and Loan that one of the Bush sons was involved with. Okay, huge scandal. One of the uh, George Bush Sr.'s sons, not not George, who who became the president. Neil Bush Neil. was involved. In oh, that. That that's was a right. Billion, good old Neil. Good old Neil. That was a tr- that was a billion dollar bank. We're talking about now with uh, Bank of America, City, and so on. These are two to five trillion dollar banks. Mm, not thousands billion, of times, trillions, thousands yes. of times. The idea that you could have say, a uh, $5 million savings and loan that got taken over by some crooks. Okay. But we're talking about now a 2 to $5 trillion global financial institution that is run as a fraud. Mm. You know, that, that is absolutely mind-boggling. Well, that affects the whole system. And the thing is, I mean, in some ways, what is it that boggles the mind? I think it's just the scale of it. But also, it's a scandal because Bernie Madoff, actually what he was running was, was quite simple to understand. He was just lying. He was just, he was just saying, you know, we, we, we do 10% every year, you know, year after year after year, don't ask any questions. People didn't, didn't ask any questions. And for some years, they did get I mean, that's a straight-up Ponzi scheme. But when you start talking it's about derivatives simple. and things, it, well, it gets thing, very confusing. I want to ask you, Randy, about this. Because yeah. derivatives and derivatives of derivatives, derivatives and god knows how far you go down that road they are so complicated that a lot of the people selling these things and a lot certainly a lot of a lot of the customers didn't really know what they were buying did they yeah well certainly that's true um so they they will they'll come into a um a local uh united states government and um offer to uh, help them finance say a sewage plant um, but they'll do it in an extremely complicated way and try to convince, you know, these local um, yokels, um, 
or in other words, uh, unsophisticated uh, government officials, that uh, you know th- their way is a much better way that involves a bunch of interest rate swaps and um, uh, which are a derivative that are incomprehensible. And then it turns out that they will these local governments have committed themselves to to paying extremely high interest um and they've got to then lay off all their police to try to cover the interest payments see, I, see, I i don't understand why anybody would sign up for something that they don't understand well I mean, is this not the basic? same is this not the same model as the world bank going into third world countries and saying look we're going to extract your resources we're going to give you this this loan and you'll pay it off in time and suddenly they realize ah oh, we have to cut down all our forests we have to fire our police is it a similar system well i i think that that probably happened i'm uh, i'm not uh, an expert on the, that but uh, these big banks do the same thing too, of course. What is it about human nature, Randy, that makes people buy products when they don't understand what it is they're buying, either for their community or individually or on behalf of their institution? Well, occasionally these guys are bribed to do it. So, so sometimes there's fraud on both sides. Um, I I think that we we tend to think that you know innovation is a good thing. And outside of the financial sector, probably most innovations are good. I mean, I I love my iPhone. I I never thought I'd see the day that I would actually even want a cell phone. Okay, there are very nice innovations out there. and, and, And we're living through a time when we're getting fairly rapid innovation in some areas. And some of these gadgets that we're getting, you know, they they're very nice and appealing. The thing about financial innovations is that they, uh, especially in the past 30 years, almost none of them actually has been a good thing. It's all malware. All of them have been about squeezing what we call economic rents um, out of uh, people's income flows to flow directly to Wall Street. So that's what most of the innovations are about. But I'm just saying, you know, we, we, we tend to have this attitude that innovation is good. Oh, here's a new fancy way to, to do the financing. And so it's sort of appealing. But then it turns out that the people you're dealing with are not only much more clever than you, they're also much more rapacious than you could possibly imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so all innovation recently most 90% or whatnot of innovation in the financial sector is to game the system is to increase the amount of fraud well there, there are two there are two kinds of financial in, innovations um, that in, that increasingly dominate finance one is to get around rules and regulations now as soon as you pass a regulation or rule that interferes with um, the financial sector doing what it wants to do, they immediately put a team together to see if they can get around it. This isn't new, okay? But the uh, degree to which they do it has increased for a variety of reasons, including going global. Mm -hmm. So we will try to find a way to house our bank outside the country that, uh, that is imposing stricter rules on us, for example. So that's a very large portion of the innovation. The other innovation is to make things more complex so that the, the counterparty, the person you're dealing with, cannot understand what it is you're doing. 
So those are the two main kinds of innovation. Neither of these serve any public purpose. I mean, for really obvious reasons, you don't want banks to get around your rules by pretending to live offshore, and you don't want them to purposely make things so complex that the customer can't understand them. This isn't just my opinion. Paul Volcker, who was the head of the Fed back in the um, uh, uh, Carter Reagan days, said the he was asked, can you think of any financial innovation since since those days, since the Carter days, that was useful? And he said, <laughs> you know, no, he said, you know, the only one I can think of is the ATM machine. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Dave, hello. Welcome back, Dave. Nice to have you on the show again. Hello. Hello. I know you're, you're calling in via your iPhone from somewhere very strange indeed. Um our guest tonight, Randy, has, has already told us that Wall Street currently gets 40% of all profits generated. 40%. But he says it's not going to stop. Wall Street will not stop until he gets everything. Everything. What kind... Oh, I'm interested in, in the psychology of this. And you know about psychology. Hmm, what, bit, yeah. what are we dealing with here in terms of you know, a psychological disorder? If it is a disorder, it might not be. I don't know. Um, you would argue it's kind of a sociopathy, it's kind of an antisocial personality disorder or a kind of narcissistic personality disorder where everything has to focus on you. You know, every interaction with every person is about you and not trusting anybody and wanting more. It's like somebody with a personality disorder, for example, will constantly test somebody in a relationship to make sure they're not going to leave. Oh, yeah. And so when they leave, they're devastated because they've been betrayed. But what they've done, of course, is made them leave by being horrible. And you've almost got a similar kind of relationship between these kind of financial sectors and and the rest of us. They they don't want us to leave, but they're constantly testing us to make sure that we won't, but we can't. Randy, do you you see this in a psychological um, interpretation? Yeah, there there actually was a a study. I know it's been disputed, but... um, they actually looked at uh, Wall Street traders and they found that about 10% of them fit the, that description just about exactly. And there's another Gresham law. <laughs> Look, if the other trade, if you have 10% of your traders with this attitude and you're the, in the 90% that doesn't have this personality disorder, how can you compete with them? There's only one way. You have to do what they do or you will not be able to retain your position. You can't be a money manager unless you beat the average. Okay, that's the, the, the rule of thumb. You have to be better than the average. Not everyone can be a better than average. But you've, when you've got 10% that are willing to do anything to get a high return, then that really has to be the, uh, the bar for you to reach and to be successful. There must be a fair bit of economic arrogance on both sides, both the people running the system, but also the people who are buying the products and and believe they believe what it is. Because some of them must be buying it and actually convincing themselves they actually do understand it before they get shafted. And I think often they they might also have a... um, uh, blown up view of their own intelligence and wiliness and, and all of that. And then it's, it's much easier to sucker them in. 
But I wanted to add to that, in addition to the, the, the possibility that we've got personality disorders and so on, um, your own uh, Lord Skidelsky has been writing in the last few years about the um, complete dominance of love of money and nothing else in um, uh, at least in the top ranks of the decision makers in our societies. Um, as you know, he was the uh, biographer of John Maynard Keynes. And this also was Keynes's point. So Skidelsky's been looking at um, Keynes's writings, economic possibilities for our grandchildren and so on. When, when he, he argued, you know, 50 years from now, we will have solved all of the, um, the, the real economic problems, that is providing decent food, clothing, shelter for everybody, okay, at least in the developed world. With writing in 1930s, uh, we will have solved all of that, okay? And, and then we can get on with the things that are actually important. And uh, making money, in Keynes's view, was not one of those. But the, the reality is, what we have done, of course, is we've exalted making money um, to be really the, the only thing that has any value. We have, haven't we? That's exactly what our society is all about now. Yeah. It's all about and the cash. Make it rain, baby. That is that makes it very tough, and you know that that's basically why I was saying we're um, screwed because it's very hard to see how we're going to change this. I think our situation in America is probably a bit harder than yours, just because of the the importance of campaign finance. Exactly, exactly. I was just thinking that if you have it, we have a system in in the United States where you need a hundred million. You need to be able to raise a hundred million dollars in order to run for president, and that is the fact of the matter. And and like you said, where are you? going to go who has that kind of money well obviously a 40 percent is going to the financial sector if you have a if i'm a type of person who can raise a hundred million hundred million dollars i i'm probably a sociopath if if that's my if Almost that's, certainly. no definitely yeah if i can raise on if i'm the kind of person who can raise a no hundred million then i'm probably a sociopath and suddenly i'm going to be making public policy and deciding on you know what what infuriated me during the campaign is that one moment when mitt romney said something like oh i love big bird but i'd close down pbs i'm like pbs we're talking about you know 150 million this is on the scale of trillions and and you're going to you're going to pick on some kids program on national television is something that you would do to to to, to silence a voice of 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 dissent and of will, learning of education improve our quality of life you say randy you say everything is financialized yeah what do you mean by that well uh, okay think about our um home mortgage system uh, the the way that i look at it is that we financialized homes we use in the old days, you used a mortgage to finance the purchase of a home. The bank held the mortgage. You paid it down. Eventually, you got to own your own home. Okay, we completely changed that to uh, uh, financial institutions um, issue these mortgage loans. They don't hold the mortgages. They package them together to serve as collateral to, um, uh, behind securities. The securities then are used as collateral in order to uh, obtain more loans to finance their purchases of assets. So what the whole 
purpose of the mortgage was changed from, you know, basically to help people buy homes to serve as the collateral behind what we call layering of debt on debt on debt. The problem was that in the in the old days, they used uh, U.S. government debt treasuries as the collateral behind further borrowing to finance their positions and assets. There wasn't enough government debt. Now, this might sound fairly crazy to uh, most of your listeners because they think, oh, well, the U.S. is uh, heavily indebted, the, the Treasury has issued way too much debt. But from the financial sector's point of view, there's not nearly enough U.S. Treasuries out there. So they needed to find a relatively safe kind of collateral to hold. So in the beginning, they securitized relatively safe home mortgages, but there wasn't enough of that. So then they said, well, why don't we securitize some slightly riskier mortgages? And then that wasn't enough. Why don't we start securitizing <laughs> subprime mortgages? That wasn't enough. Hey, we got a homeless um, so, problem. Let's let this guy buy a house. Yeah, so they continually lowered the standards required to get a mortgage and then continually lowered the standards for what kinds of mortgages could be securitized. They still didn't have enough. So what did they do? They start issuing securities whose backing is more securities. So this is called collateralized debt obligations. And they go from CDOs to CDO squared to CDO cubed. So <laughs> <laughs> they're securitizing, re-securitizing, oh re-re-securitizing, and so on until you the amount of stuff out there that is linked to the actual physical house, it's many, many times bigger. So we're layering debt on debt on debt on debt. And finally, down at the very bottom, it's like Yertle the Turtle, if you read Dr. Seuss. <laughs> down at the very bottom of this pile of turtles, there's one turtle who's living in a house. And supposedly, his mortgage payments are going to service all of these turtles standing on top of him all the way up to the one on the very top. The whole system was designed to crash. It had to crash because we were layering so much debt on top of income that wasn't basically was actually, not growing. When, when, you, when you put it as simply as that, any five-year-old actually who's familiar with Yertle the Turtle could have told you that <laughs> Now I get come. it. I've been exactly. confused for so long. Yeah. The Yertle the Turtle. Why did no one just explain that? Yeah. Um, this is something that, I mean, one of the things, Randy, that, that brought, brought you to our attention and got, you know, we wanted to have you on the show so much is that, you know, you called this before the crisis happened. You're one of the few voices of common sense uh, that that called it well before the uh, the financial industry collapsed. When I in about two thousand three, uh, just a little anecdote here, please forgive my my girlfriend at the time and I. We wanted to sell her Volkswagen Jetta. It was worth about four thousand uh, dollars for a four by four because we were moving to the snow. We were moving to Colorado. So we went into the we went to the used car dealership, which everyone knows is a is a bastion of of good faith and uh, and and sane business practice. And I said, "Look, can we get that used uh, Bronco out in the out in the out in the yard there?" 
no, you can't because that's worth $8,000 and blah, blah, blah. And said, well, we're willing to finance it. You can have the Jetta and we'll work out something to, you know, to work off the nut. He said, no, I'm sorry, sir. We can't do that. We can't trade this used car for that one, blah, 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 blah. And then just as we were leaving, he said, but I can put you in this brand new Yukon for, which was at the time, I think $45,000 with, they would have taken the Jetta, we would have owed them 40000 and it would have been 24% interest. And I looked at my girlfriend at the time, I was like, are they insane? I can't have an $8,000 car, but I can have a $50,000 car? I can walk, I can drive off the lot with it? They've looked at my finances, they know how much we're making. How much of this crisis is caveat tour? Well, there uh, an awful lot of that happened, too. So, <laughs> there, many Americans could tell the same story about houses. They would go in, they had a 10% down payment. They wanted to buy a house. Well, sorry, we can't make that loan, but we could give you a 120% of the value of the house. <laughs> it's just crazy. It's but nice. I mean, I understand, like you, you said, you know, they go into, they, they, they hoodwink the, the yokel politicians. But I mean, there's a certain part of people that goes in and can go, wow, I can't have an $8,000 car, but I can't have a 50000 I can't have a you know $200,000 house, but I can have a $500,000 house. I mean, there's got to be a point where you're like, this smells, you know, <laughs> it looks like shit, it walks like shit, it talks, I mean, come on, there's got to be a point where, where, the, where the buyer has got to go in and go, you know what, this system is flawed and this ain't going to work. Ali, I want to ask you, how ghastard is your flabber? Uh, just completely, actually. I thought your your comment earlier about the profound unreality. But I, I mean, some of that's just our, our, it doesn't sit with our sort of chosen belief pattern. You know, we think all of this should be clean and whiter and whiter. And if you sign blah, then it should be that simple. And of course, you know, it, it clearly just isn't, it isn't simple and it isn't clean. And uh, it's, it's actually fairly scary, really. Yeah, Dave, we're going through enormous amounts of public cuts here in the UK, as of course uh, the US is and many, many other countries too. In the UK, there is this feeling, isn't it, coming from our, our precious uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, that somehow we've been bad boys and girls and we've got to take our medicine, it's going to hurt us, but it will be for our long-term good. And yes, we, we have been naughty. There's this sort of moral agenda, isn't there, somehow? Yeah, it's a funny thing, because the, um, you know, it's, it's been well stated now that it's a pack of lies that they've been telling, because the deficit was lower than when the Tories last left power, but... The the interesting thing is that this one is it reminds me of um, the concept of a medieval army on the move. It has to keep moving, otherwise it will starve, and that's why you get this constant kind of uh, brownian motion of financial products. But the other thing that occurred to me is a similar feudal sort of thing. In if you think about the think um, about the UK for the minute, the. Uh, the ideological kind of vandalism that's going on in the name of fiscal probity in this country at the minute. It is about making sure that every aspect of our lives is actually linked directly to the financiers. And that's why public services have got to be privatized as far as the Tories are concerned, because at the minute they're not directly, they're indirectly controlled because of taxes and everything. But they want it directly in the control. You know, this, this, these people ideologically want us in the thrall of the financiers and the bankers in the way our peasant forebears were in the thrall of their feudal lords. Randy, you've, you've been pretty good looking into a crystal ball in the past. So, you know, the most interesting, possibly the most scary part of all this is, is just looking ahead to the future. 
So a year ago, you wrote that you saw two scenarios, two possible scenarios being played out. Tell us what they were and whether you've um, had any thoughts since then. Well, uh, the scary one, which unfortunately still looks very likely, is that um, we're going to continue this uh, march toward financialization, that uh, they continue to use um, the shock doctrine approach, which is let's create crises, create imaginary fiscal crises so that we can scare the population. What do you mean by imaginary fiscal crisis? Because, you know, we are talking about allegedly real sums of money here. I mean, our, our, I'm scared. Our, our deficit in the UK is something like 81 billion pounds. I mean, that's real money, isn't it? Look, it's, but it's not a problem. Whether it's real money or not, yes, there is real uh, financial wealth out there. That is, there are a lot of uh, treasury bonds that are held um, in the UK and abroad that represent real financial wealth to the holders. The uh, U.S. government and the U.K. government have promised to pay interest on these things. They pay the interest by crediting accounts at either the Bank of England or at the Federal Reserve Bank, depending on the country. Um, They can always make these payments as they come due. They always have in the past. They always will in the future. Uh, There is absolutely no chance of them uh, coming up to the point where they have to involuntarily default. Now, you could envision a scenario in which you get politicians that are so crazy, they voluntarily default on their debt. I think our Many of our Republican uh, representatives in Washington right now um, have reached that stage of lunacy, but I don't think it's going to happen anyway. Okay, and I I don't think that the the UK has the same sort of um, uh, problems as severe as as we have with our Tea Party types uh, that actually got elected. But anyway, there's no problem. Uh, The debt ratios actually are not high. They're not high compared to your fairly recent past. Our uh, U.S. federal government debt ratio at the end of World War II was over 100% of GDP. Um, It's not nearly 100% now. It is climbing. There is a scenario in which we can get to 100%. But did that 100% of uh, GDP debt ratio burden us in the post-war period? The answer is absolutely not. We went through our golden age of U.S. economic history, as did uh, the U.K., as did the developed world, as did the developing world, with those huge government debt ratios. But they are saying to us, point blank, there are, the only way to reduce the deficit is to cut public services. Cut libraries. And you're basically but, saying we can repair those 70,000 bridges that Obama mentioned in his State of the Union speech that and, and invest money into infrastructure and into schools and, and that type of thing, and we'll be okay? In fact, that is the only way to reduce the debt ratios. The, this belief that you can use austerity and cut your way back to a balanced budget hasn't worked. It doesn't work. It, it could possibly work for a very small nation that uh, was able to run big current account surpluses. In other words, that could use export-led growth. That's very hard um, for the United States. I'm not an expert on the UK. I wouldn't want to guess on your ability to become the next Singapore. 
maybe you can do it. The United States clearly cannot follow that path. So the the way we will reduce our deficit and debt ratio is exactly the way we did it after World War II. We did it through rapid economic growth. So yes, what we need to do is uh, undertake a massive infrastructure investment program like we did after World War II. After World War II, we did it uh, in the name of national defense and also in the name of we have a baby boomer bulge here. We got to build the infrastructure to take care of our uh, growing numbers of young people. What would be the justification now? Well, Obama hinted at this last year in the State of the Union address national defense. China is eating us for lunch. China will very quickly surpass us in uh, most important areas that are important for maintaining a, a vital, robust economy. So there's the national defense. Now, I, I, I'm not a cold warrior. I, I'm, I'm just, you know, laying out. This sounds suspiciously FDR New Deal, sir. <laughs> are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? <laughs> well, uh, no, but we don't have that anymore. The uh, the other justification we have is we're an aging society. So rather than taking care of the baby boom bulge, what we have to do now is take care of our elderly. We need to start now to put in place the infrastructure we're going to need to do that. So yes, uh, we need the infrastructure that he's talking about. And we need education. We need elder care. Uh, that will increase our growth rate. We could actually get wages growing again, which they've not done since the early 1970s. And that will allow the budget deficit to go down and the debt ratio to start declining. Okay, if we don't do this, if we swallow everything we've been told, hook, line and sinker, that we have to desperately cut public services in order to balance our books to pay off the credit card bill, if you will. Interestingly, Mike Bloomberg said something very interesting this week. He said, it's not like your household. And, if, you know, Bloomberg should know about finances for God's sake. He said, it's not like your household. In your household, people are saying, oh, you can't spend money you don't have. That is true for your household because nobody's going to lend you an infinite amount of money. When it comes to the United States, people do seem willing to lend us an infinite amount of money. They can't stop lending us more money. That's what Bloomberg said just this week. But if, if we do s swallow this line, Randall, mm -hmm. what's the future going to look like? The, the problem is that... We're going to have slow growth, if any, which makes it harder for indebted consumers and uh, small businesses in America, that's where our debt is, to service their debt. They're going to continue to default on debt. The, the, the next uh, debt crisis we're going to have in the United States is going to be the student loan debt crisis. Yeah. That's a trillion, trillion dollars of debt. The delinquency rate has uh, jumped up to 14%. So we're going to have I'm not debt surprised, crisis. but tell me what society is going to look like. There's been this enormous transfer of wealth. I don't know what to compare it to. Maybe you can't compare it to anything else that's ever happened in human history. You, you would know. I don't. There's been this massive transfer from, from the bottom and the middle classes right up to the top 1%. So if that continues, what sort of world and society are we going to live in? Well, the inequality is a, a huge problem. Uh, your own uh, Jillian Tett uh, has um, talked about this, that uh, 
the health uh, analyses show that inequality is just extremely bad for um, health, for um, physical and psychological health. It's damaging for society. And it's very self-reinforcing because those at the very top circle the wagons. Um, and they have no interest in, say, public They can afford the lawyers to parks. do it. Yeah, you know, they've got their own gated communities and, and they just close off and they live like feudal lords and they suck the rent out, as we've been talking about, and they care less and less and less about the society. So, And they, you, wear, they wear the banner of libertarianism. Well, yes, because it's very self-serving. Look, uh, I, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Why can't you guys do that? Why do you need the government to help you? When, in fact, of course, as Obama said, uh, no one ever got rich without the government's help. You need the government's help. So I... I think that the um, society is going to deteriorate in in very um, unpleasant and very dangerous ways. That's the first scenario. That's the really bad one. The, the second one is, you know, uh, okay. When I wrote this, I I was more optimistic about the um, uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement. I I don't know now. <laughs> That's uh, not going so well. Um, I think that what is going to happen in the relatively short term is we're going to crash again. Uh, the economy is slowing down. We're, we're starting to see evidence that is uh, around the globe that economies are slowing. Uh, we are, as I said, we're seeing defaults and delinquencies going up in other areas away from real estate. Um, it is starting to look like uh, we could be heading back toward recession and toward another financial crisis. And w with all the deregulation and just propping up the Wall Street and saying, go back to doing what you were doing, we're, we're actually not going to intervene. Um, and letting them get away with all of this, uh, they learn nothing from the previous crisis. Why should they? It turned out just fine for them. Uh, it's inevitable. They're going to blow us up again. Uh, Randy, so what do you make of the trillion dollar coin? And is there any chance it can look like this rare shell that I picked up in Madagascar? <laughs> I looked at that proposal as being educational. Because if you can get people to understand that the sovereign government can uh, spend money into existence, not only can, but does. Um, and if people can get their minds around, wow, that means that they don't actually have to issue debt, um, then we don't need to worry about debt ratios. Then we don't need to worry about debt limits, which we have in the U.S. Um, that it, it was a, a, a teaching moment. I, I wasn't really presenting it as um, a serious proposal, but I thought that we could learn from it. And, and I think that it did play that role to some extent. Now, unfortunately, you know, we went right back to the debt limit debate and sequestration and all this stuff. So we learned something, but we didn't change the, the policy at all. We're always talking about growth. We're always talking about the economy of uh and, and how it's growing, and it's grown by 0.2%, or it's, or it's stagnant, or it's this. 
I've never been able to kind of wrap my head around the fact that constant growth is a good thing because the Mm -hmm. ultimate goal of all this appears to be spinning our natural resources into gold, Rumpelstiltskin style, that that it's all about growth. The the end product of that is that everything is commodified, everything is – and the problem with gold is you can't eat gold. So this is why the Lord did Jesus Christ through the moneylenders out of the temple and we get into we get into something where are we are we in the process of when we talk about growth spinning spinning all our natural resources into gold and is that a good thing or can we reach a stasis point where we're we're in the pink yeah i'm i'm sympathetic to that i i think that we of course the thing that really matters is improving people's lives that's the most important thing um one of the things that's very important in the kinds of societies that we live in, various forms of capitalism, almost everywhere in the world now, is that jobs are extremely important, not just for earning your income, but for self-satisfaction, for the way that people look at you, for networking and so on. And the problem is that if we rely on the private sector to create jobs, they create jobs only when they grow. So we need to break that link if we're going to achieve a society that actually can provide a decent living standard for most people between growth and jobs. We need the jobs whether we have growth or not. Okay, so we need to break that link. Um, And I think there is a way to do that. We can't rely on the private sector to create those jobs because the private sector, if it's capitalistic, needs to grow to create the jobs. And with productivity, uh, innovations that increase labor productivity, which is a normal thing, you actually can get economic growth while even losing jobs. And so you need even faster growth to create jobs. So we we need to break that link. And, and this is where a place where the government is going to have to play a role to ensure that uh, people can work. Yeah, this final question to you, Randy. I mean, how, how do you feel? Do you feel optimistic? Uh, for the near future, it's pretty hard to be optimistic. Uh, for the longer run, yes. Uh, just on this invented system, yes, we, uh, we invented capitalism. It's a human invention. And we invented, at least some of us, invented this, the current version of capitalism. We don't, we're not stuck with it. We don't have to retain it. This is a, a failed form of capitalism in the same way that the financial capitalism that we had in the 1920s failed in the Great Depression. We got rid of it. We said, hey, you know, this didn't work. We're not going to do this anymore. And we managed uh, a good three decades with a different form of capitalism, but that gradually evolved and was pushed and shoved to the kind that we've got now, it failed. It has failed. It collapsed. And we decided, let's try to restore it this time around. That was the mistake. So the, I, I, I don't believe this, the system we have now can survive. The next time it crashes, we need to choose a better form. Randy, what happens if we just let the banks go? We don't bail them out. And do you recommend that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I recommended it last time. I still recommend it. And remember, we're not talking about all the banks. We're talking about a dozen banks. A dozen banks are perpetrating these frauds. They four The top four U.S. banks have $171 trillion of these derivatives we talked about. Derivatives are bets on death. 
Okay, let's let them die. <laughs> let's let them all go bad. Let's close down the top dozen banks. In the U.S., we have 4,995 other banks that are not doing any of this stuff. So it's not a matter of shutting all the banks down and not having any banks. We're talking about shutting down a handful of banks that are strangling the system. Randy, uh, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Where do we find you on the web? The easiest thing to do is Google Great Leap Forward. That's my own blog. And New Economic Perspectives is uh, the blog run by my colleagues at University of Missouri, Kansas City. And for people who, who want to read more academic papers, go to the Levy Institute, www.levy.org. And that contains uh, works by Wynn Godley, Hyman Minsky, me, and many other people. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Professor Randall Ray, our special guest tonight. And of course, you've heard from him and Dave Bottom and Ali, Ali Gardner in the chat. We will be back with you soon time next week. Until then, good night, everybody. Night-night. Bye. Radio Latopia. Intelligent listening for smart people. Share us with your friends on Facebook or Twitter now. 